This is the Functional Rehab Podcast with your host, Dr. Ashley Mack. Let's talk about aging, getting older, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and beyond decades of life. There's a lot of changes that happen. And if you look on the internet, they're going to be talking about various different aspects to be able to do delay aging or improve your longevity. I actually just recently started reading Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive, when it actually comes to expanding what we call, I think he calls it the health span, the opportunity to maximize the amount uh, or the quality of life that you have when it comes to the later stages in life. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring on today's guest, who I actually got connected via LinkedIn, and he's an expert in working with adults 50 plus, and he was kind enough to actually share his expertise with us. So Al, so great to see you, and thank you so much for being on today's episode. Ashley, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to have uh, what I'm sure is going to be a fun conversation. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. I was doing some research, and obviously I'm reading this book, and so I know that there's a whole world when it comes to aging. I'm actually turning 36 this year. And I remember, I mean, just being in healthcare itself as a physical therapist, I would be working with people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s when I was in my early 20s. And I remember going in and thinking, okay, I knew everything. They taught everything. They, they, they shared with us the various different cellular processes that happen as we age. And I'll tell you, I can, you know, recite the back of the textbook for you. But what I didn't realize was the the life experiences that occur with each decade in life and how that really translates on over from what happens in our body. So I'm really glad that you you, you work with individuals, you know, in, in the later stages in life. But before we go into like the nitty gritty, the subject of what aging is, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and what you do. Well, uh, thanks again, Ashley. You know, um, as I sit here right now and I look back um, and I'm 64, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing now in terms of, you know, coaching, aging and aspiring adults to take back control of their health and live stronger in their second half. That's sort of the elevator speech to what I'm doing now. But I'm also speaking uh, and just trying to make a positive impact. But But as I look back you know, on my life to really, you know, explain briefly how I got here. When I was 25, I made a conscious decision to die healthy. The phrase that I used at the time was to square the curve. Now, I reached that that point uh, at a relatively early age for a lot of different reasons. I'd started a running program, so I'd started working on trying to improve my fitness. I wasn't athletic as a kid. I didn't do sports. So I was kind of getting into the running lifestyle and at the same time kind of learning Uh, more about aging and about health and seeing people around me, specifically my parents and their friends uh, and other family, aging at what I thought was a pretty rapid rate and also differing rates of aging, right? Some people getting uh, what seemed like faster, uh, older faster and, and other folks not so much. And, you know, it really came back to a conversation I was having with a friend one day when he asked me why I ran and he hated running. And, I, you know, listen, running's not for everybody. That's for sure. Um, when he asked me why I did it, I thought for a moment and I said, well, I, I run to square the curve. It was this vision I had of living my entire life in good health and then free of dis- disease and dysfunction and then going to sleep one night at like the age of 120 and not waking up the next. 
and this vision was a horizontal line representing my my life and then a vertical line representing the day i would die and i i juxtapose that vision against what um we typically see now in this day and age which is a slow gradual decline of health i think this is more common um i often say that many people sadly die a slow death before their actual demise sometimes it's cognitive sometimes it's functional sometimes it's emotional sometimes it's a combination of all three and so i think from from that moment at 25 until now uh, every day of my life i've thought about and researched and experimented with what it would take to create the best opportunity to die healthy and i would i would say listen the average person listening right now they're thinking man al that's that sounds like kind of a pipe dream man like really i think the reality is that you know what i what i hope to do is to compress the period of time of any illness right to basically stave off the onset of chronic disease or dysfunction because in truth we've we've got a pass from something right and i and i think at some point there is the onset of something which might end up causing the end of life so in truth i think it's very realistic to say hey can i delay the onset of these diseases or or some illness and compress this period of suffering because i think you know again to juxtapose that to where uh, we are now as a culture, as a society, Ashley, where we see people living with diabetes, living with, uh, you know, some form of dementia, living, uh, if they're fortunate, with cancer, perhaps for decades, and suffering the consequences of side effects from medications, uh, and how their life changes, and, and even more, perhaps importantly, how the life of their family and friends change, because inevitably, we're impacted in often negative ways. You know, I, I'll, I'll often say to somebody my age, like, listen, the last thing you wanna do is become a burden to somebody you love, right? Like your kids, you don't wanna burden them with your health problems, but I think sometimes that's what happens. So uh, I guess in a nutshell, it all started when I was 25, of, as you probably know, um, I wrote a book uh, last year called Age Well and Feel Great. It actually was released prior to uh, Peter's book. Uh, I reference him quite a book, uh, quite a bit in my own book, um, but that was my way of sharing uh, what I've learned about uh, how to, as you mentioned earlier, expand our health span versus our lifespan. To me, and I'll stop here, it, it is about the quality of the years right? We know that health is to a large degree a mystery. There's a lot we don't know, but there's a lot we do know. And I think we all have the power to impact uh, our health span. And, and that's what I'm passionate about. I love it. Yeah. So if we're looking at it, and I, I, um, it's great. I'm glad I'm reading this book, but I'm also, it's, it's cool to be able to listen and hear what you're speaking and you're sharing. There's a lot of cool parallels um, in that. And I think that we live in this day and age where there, we have uh, information that is so available. Uh, you know, you have Google, you have Amazon, you have podcasts like this that actually allow us to access some really important information. And we live in an age of information where we can take this and we can either listen to it and be like, yeah, yeah, we know we can, we can just go out and live our lives or 
do we take this information and can we act upon it? And that's the purpose of podcasts like this and my other podcasts is to be able to leave this episode or these episodes with some form of action. And so I really uh, appreciate you sharing that with me. And so I, yeah, and they got me thinking a lot about aging because when I was 25 years old, I was young. Everyone in their twenties feels invincible, right? I'm at my, I'm in my thirties right now, turning 36. I know that things are going to start to decline in the next few years. And so it got me thinking from a long-term perspective. And so as much as I could do research on my own, interviewing experts such as yourself is a really great way to get a better understanding. And so what we're going to be doing in this conversation is we're going to be breaking it down from a decade by decade standpoint. So when it comes to just considerations or things or changes that happen, uh, from a general standpoint, and then we'll break it down by decade. What are some of the things or factors that we need to change or, or uh, what are some of the changes, scenarios, and situations that happen that we need to consider as we age from like a general standpoint? Right. Um, well, it's a really, it's a really re- uh, great question. You know, Ashley, the way that I think of it, and and this is true, whether we're talking about from your 40s to your 50s, or your 70s to your 80s. And and what we know is that as the decades go on, the impact of the changes that occur increase and often exponentially, right? But as a general rule, here's the way that I think of it. I I tend to put um, the aging process, what happens, the biology of aging, if you will, Uh, in two broad columns. One is the functional decline. And as a physical therapist, you're well aware of this, right? How um, compensation begins to rear its ugly head increasingly as time goes on. The quality of our soft tissue tends to decline. I like to think that we go from prime rib to beef jerky uh, gradually and progressively. We've got, you know, changes which happen at the joint level uh, you know, I, I talk often about how tissue remodels. If we don't use it, we're going to lose it. And over time, we lose range of motion. So we're talking about this one column, which is the functional aspects of our decline. The other, the other column is what I think of as our risk for chronic disease, uh, whatever it may be, right? So if we're talking about Um, cardiovascular disease, uh, any form of dementia, be it Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, or even we would, we could put, I think, uh, ALS into this category as well. And then of course, all of the various forms of cancer. And then, you know, the other diseases that we think of as being age related, whether it be fatty liver disease, non-alcohol related fatty liver disease and on and on. So to me, there are these, there are these two columns. And what's interesting is how these two columns, one, the functional decline, one, our risk for chronic disease, how they interrelate, right? So what's the impact of movement and muscle mass uh, specifically related to age-related muscle wasting or sarcopenia? How does muscle, losing muscle over time, uh, impact our risk for chronic disease, right? And vice versa. Of course, we, we, uh, we couldn't have this discussion without, without talking about our metabolic health, right? Uh, I have an entire chapter in my book on insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. Uh, and what I believe is uh, one of the, you know, 
I think at, at the root or, or crux of a lot of chronic disease. Um, and so how does insulin resistance relate to uh, movement and exercise? And there's a very, very direct correlation there because when we're exercising, when we're using muscle tissue, we're creating a depot for uh, sugar in our bloodstream from the food we eat to be deposited somewhere other than in fat cells. And we see the downstream effects of, uh, you know, things like cro uh, chronic systemic inflammation, which again is a big hallmark of uh, age-related decline in our health and an increased risk for chronic disease. So um, broadly speaking, like I said, I look at these two, these two uh, columns and, and I guess I'll say one last thing. And, and of course, because you're a physical therapist, this is going to resonate with you. But, you know, I always tell people, listen, when we talk about chronic disease and our risk for it, there's a lot of mystery there, right? There's so much we, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much that we don't know yet about why some people get sick and other people don't. So there's an element of mystery there. We're learning every day. And by the way, I think the more we learn, in my opinion, the more we're tying things back to our metabolic health, to mitochondrial health, to what's happening in terms of how we create energy, utilize energy at the mitochondrial level. Um, and I hope that's not a term that, you know, I, I think most of your listeners will probably be aware of it, but we can explore that a little bit more. But to me, there's a mystery there with chronic disease. There's much less of a mystery with functional decline, right? Like, I say to people every day, listen, there, there's no mystery. If you want to continue to move well and feel good and reduce your risk of age-related arthritic pain, of low back pain, of hip pain, you go down the list, right? Um, there is uh, very little that's a mystery about that. And, and as an aside, you probably uh, are not aware of this, but I operated with a sports physician uh, for about eight or nine years, we op I operated a gait analysis lab slash clinic uh, in uh, my previous home state of Connecticut. So uh, a lot of years of working with folks to help them uh, maintain good function. Uh, I have an entire chapter on, in my book on the feet where I talk about, you know, uh, the intrinsic muscles within the feet and how to, to strengthen and stabilize them so that you get good uh, sensory input into the body, right? Uh, and and how important our shoe uh, shoes are in terms of uh, what we're doing, and how much how important it is to spend more time barefooted, uh, you know, and all of these kinds of things. So there's an entire chapter on stability and how to develop that at a basic and fundamental level. So um, all of these things to me interrelate, but you know, and again, it's fun to break it down. Anyway, I'll stop there. I could go on and on, man. This is great. Yeah, I, um, I I wrote some really great notes, and I'm excited for us to take a deep dive. And, you know, going through this, I realized it might actually be a really great thing. Instead of, say, going per decade, we can actually just go into each one of these silos and talk about it a little bit more, which I think is going to be um, the most exciting. And I love the fact that you broke it down into two specific categories. We have functional decline, and then we actually just have the risk for chronic diseases. And I think one of the challenges, say, just the overall healthcare system, but just how society works, is that trying to reduce the risk of developing something 
that's kind of like the world of uh, preventative medicine. And what was really interesting is that through my research of understanding the medical industry, not only from a provider standpoint, but from a payer standpoint as well, as I came across some really interesting revealing news is the fact that we know that preventative medicine, preventive care is really helpful. And it's crucial to optimal health and reducing our risk. But the big question we have to ask is, well, who's gonna be paying for this? And when we ask that question, it's like, we look at, is it going to be the private citizens or is it going to be big insurance companies? And what's really interesting looking at, well, why aren't insurance companies paying for this? This is such a valuable thing. And uh, it was a book that I actually just finished called The, the Healing of America, uh, written by T.R. Reid. I think it came out in around 2006 and 2017. I'll put the link into the show notes. But what it revealed was that their data showed that the typical, now this is just private insurance. So like when you're under the age of 65, the average lifespan of a person in a private insurance policy is about six years. And so what ends up happening is the fact that most chronic diseases will often present itself a little bit later in life, probably 40s and 50s and 65 and plus. And so these private insurance companies don't really have an incentive to spend all this money on preventive care because by the time that develops or if it does develop, that person is no longer in the, their ecosystem, right? And so that was just a really interesting fact. And I thought I should bring it up yeah. uh, when it comes to that. Um, but let's talk about, let's talk about like the, the big thing. What I, let's talk about like bone and muscle health, regeneration, and those rates, um, because th- those are the things that I often encounter. Uh, as as a PT in regards to just overall muscle function. Yep. So you brought up the term age-related sarcopenia, right? Yep. Let's take a deep dive and talk a little bit more about that. Um, what uh, I know that uh, from one article, I'm just going to quote it. It says, um, pretty much sarcopenia has been defined as age-related involuntary loss of skeletal muscle mass and strength. So it begins as early as the fourth decade in your 40s um, of life. Evidence suggests that actually skeletal muscle mass, so like the amount of muscle and skeletal muscle strength, your ability to produce force, uh, declines in a linear fashion. So that means it's going to be, if you look at a line graph, it's actually going to be like taking my pen and rotating a few degrees with up to about a 50% of mass being lost by the eighth decade in life right and um it was interesting is that they shared that the the greatest loss is actually the loss of type 2 also known as fast twitch muscle fibers so it's some some really important big stuff i'm turning 35 i kind of feel like i'm about to reach my peak or i'm at my peak right now and i notice that things are going to change over the next couple of years so Yeah. With your observations, like let's talk a little bit more about skeletal muscle function, some of the things that you've seen, especially in the clients that you've worked with in regards to how you can delay that, how you can improve just overall function. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, very quickly, um, before I get into that, I just want to refer back to what you said earlier. And I, I think it's it's really important for all of us to remember that when we look at the healthcare system, it is uh, very good at certain things and very bad at others. What it's really good at is, is trauma care uh, and treating symptoms and also treating uh, a disease once it has developed. There's a lot of profit in companies uh, that are related, hospitals, what have you. There's very little profit and incentive, as you pointed out, in preventive 
uh, medicine. There, you know, I you know I often like to say that there's there's no money in good health. Uh, you know, that's the bottom line. It it sounds awful to say, but if we keep in mind that the food industry and the healthcare industry are driven largely by profit, and we just keep that in mind as we navigate the landscape, we're going to be a lot better off. Now, when we talk about you know muscle and talk specifically about sarcopenia which as you pointed out is simply age-related muscle wasting. I think the best way to look at it is with this simple idea that if we don't use it, we are going to lose it. You know, one of the things that I, that I talk about in my book is uh, something called hormesis or hormetic stress. Now, hormesis is simply some kind of stress that we introduce to the body that makes the body or a body part or some system in the body more resilient and more resistant to that stress. Listen, you're, you're a PT, you're an athlete. So you understand that in order for you to get better, for you to get stronger, for you to become more resilient, you have to introduce your body to some form of stress. And as a result, as a byproduct of you know, dribbling that stress on your body, it becomes better, it adapts, right? It becomes stronger. Um, and this is true when, when, we're when we're talking about vaccines, right? This is a, basically how a vaccine operates. Um, but, you know, in simple terms, Ashley, the, the human body thrives on physical stress, right? And, and we live in a, you know, in this weird, uh, very strange period of time in history where as humans, especially in our society, we seek comfort. We seek an easier way to do things. And I believe as a species, we're wired for the most efficient path. I mean, if we look at how our species has developed, has been naturally selected, it's very easy to, to imagine that, you know, if we go back tens of thousands of years or longer, uh, that there would have been periods of intense uh, fighting, maybe uh, running from, uh, you know, a predator, uh, having to climb, having to dig. Um, but then, you know, periods of where we were rest and resting and recovering and trying to conserve as much energy as possible. So the body, you know, I, I wait, I say, you know, I've often said, listen, man, when our species left the food chain, that's kind of when the shit hit the fan, you know, we in, in some way, shape or form, We've got to just accept the fact that when tissue turns over, and we know that cells turn over all of the time, that process is happening at every moment in every day. And when a cell turns over, whatever that cell may be, whether it's a liver cell or a muscle cell, uh, specifically, since we're talking about muscle, one of the ways that that cell knows how to turn over, what kind of cell to become, uh, and you mentioned bone earlier, exactly the same thing. You've got osteoclasts, which are cells that break down bony tissue, and osteoblasts, which are cells which help reform bone tissue. So how does that cell know what to become and how to reform itself and which cells are activated? And in simple terms, it's, it's prior demand on the cell, right? It's, it's really simple. If you don't use a certain range of motion in a joint, you will gradually lose that range of motion. I've often said to someone, listen, if, if, I, if I took a three-year-old, a very hypothetical situation, but I, I taught that three-year-old how to do a full split, 
right? And I just said to that three-year-old, just do that every day. Just do that every day of your life, right? Don't even think about it. Uh, when that three-year-old was 95, they would still be doing that full split. Uh, and everybody would think it was like a circus trick, like, wow, you got must, you got, must have special genes, you know? Like, wow, your family must be amazing. Reality, all that person did was just perform that, that uh, task every day, thereby uh, asking their body to continue to hold on the ability to do that. So when we look at sarcopenia, bringing it back to this topic, we know that this process occurs. There's a lot of reasons why it happens. We also know there's an anabolic resistance that, it, that happens increasingly as we age. So it becomes harder to hold on to muscle right? Um, but the reality is that this process accelerates whenever we don't challenge muscle to, uh, to continue, you know, to be maintained. It's, it's, the bottom line is, is we need to stress these tissues. And by way of stress, we can, uh, let's just say, stave off this process of muscle wasting. I can tell you, I sit here at 64, I work with a lot of folks my age. I think I'm stronger now than I've ever been. Um, I won't say I'm as, as as fit overall. I mean, I can't, at one point when I was your age, I ran a 239 marathon. That's not happening again, ever, right? Um, so I've I've seen a lot of these changes occur, um, but, the, but the reality is it is very possible to continue to build muscle and build strength. Even, I mean, it's a very exciting study, which was literally just, uh, literally just came out and it compared um, over a 12 week period of time, a group of 55 to 65 year old individuals and a group of 75 to 85 individuals. And, and what they found through the course of this 12 week study was that the group the, uh, from 75 to 85 actually gained a little bit more strength uh, percentage-wise than did the younger group. Uh, this was an incredible, uh, in my mind, affirmation that it is never too late to turn the ship around, provided we're introducing stress, you know, in the right dose um, and over a consistent period of time. The bottom line is, Ashley, the human body will adapt, but we have to challenge it, right? And the way that we challenge it is with this physical stress. And obviously, I'll say one more thing. When we, when we talk about aging and, and, and the field of longevity or lifespan, um, we hear about a lot of different things. We hear about cold exposure as being one thing. We hear about some form of fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or what I call time-restricted eating, right? Which is to say going some period of time without food. These are all different forms of hormetic stress. They're all different ways in which we're, we're introducing a little bit of stress to the body in an effort to help it become more resilient. You know, to summarize, do hard shit. It's good for you. I love it. I love I'm it. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add in. So I, uh, I have a, an account on Reddit, um, mostly just for me to ingest on content, but there, there's this one channel on Reddit, which is actually all dedicated to steak. So if you go on Reddit and just type in steak, there's a steak channel, which is just people posting pictures of their ribeyes, sirloins and everything of them cooking it. And then they just like, be like, Hey, what, how, how did the steak turn out? But what, what I thought was really interesting was the fact that um, when we're talking about age related sarcopenia, and if you don't use it, you lose it. 
if you've ever seen like an A5 Wagyu steak or like Kobe beef and what it's, it's a very like, or even veal itself too, is that you're having these cows who are fed um, a lot of fatty food. So they end up developing a lot of fat and they're not exercising or they're not walking around. So if you look at the cross section of the meat, there is a lot of fat that is found in between those muscle fibers. So those cows, although they were pampered, they're probably not very strong. They're not very, probably not very fit either. As compared to if you look at Oh, well, cows out in the U.S. are probably raised like, you know, mass production and whatnot. But I like to think we have a lot of deer out here in Marin County, California, and deer are always on their feet or horses, for example. Uh, I was in southern Italy last summer and we got a chance to have horse meat. And one of the biggest things that we noticed was that the fact that horse meat was extremely lean. It wasn't tough, but it was lean because of the fact that the more like horses are very active you know the, you look at an image of a horse they're running across the field you look at an image of a cow they're just standing there eating grass right and so being able to see the difference and that can actually translate on over into even what our muscles will be like if you're just sitting around all day you don't have to use those muscles you don't necessarily have the opportunity to grow and so this actually translates on over into the concept of overall tissue healing because our ability to develop muscle our ability to make our bones dense, which I, I love the fact that you know, um, before I started talking, you were saying how there was this one study where people in their 70s and 80s were actually able to develop their strength. And listeners, what's really interesting, and this is something I want you all to consider when it comes to taking on, uh, say, a new exercise program, or even when you're working with a physical therapist, is when you are rehabbing and building up strength, there's a couple different things that happen. We have one, obviously improved muscle function and just muscle density. When it comes to muscle strength, it's the ability to produce force. You're looking at actually more so the cross-sectional area. So what that means is if you were to cut a muscle in half, how many of fibers do you have within that? We call it muscle density. There's another component to it, which they call muscles and um and uh, I, what do I say? Muscles in parallel, muscles kind of lined up to each other. So it's like one muscle connected to another. It's more like a chain that kind of actually lengthens it. Um, but then the second part is the neuromuscular uh, efficiency. How, how capable are you of being able to send the signals, the electrical chemical signals that come from your brain down to your spinal cord to your actual muscle itself for it to contract. And then the third piece, which I often feel gets overlooked is this concept of what we call muscle coordination, being able to do these things efficiently. And that's going to be a combination of the actual integrity of your muscles, but also the ability of your brain to actually um, cycle through. Um, but then going on to like injury uh, healing and aspects, like we, we talked about how as we age, things kind of start to slow down. And I think what was really interesting, I, I remember hearing that term, but I was trying to figure out what does that mean? People say things slow down, but what does that look like? And throughout my research, and I'll, I'll put this article in it as well, I found it to be so intriguing. I learned this morning that actually the inflammatory process as we age becomes uh, blunted and slows down. So what that means is that the inflammatory stage of healing where you're, you know, you fall and scrape your knee or you fall and break a bone, there needs to be inflammation to send blood to those tissues. Uh, that response is slower and not as robust as compared to when we were kids. And that was really interesting. And just the overall hormones and everything. And so that is, 
you know, let's talk this transitions into, you know, overcoming injuries. Um, so as we age, uh, Al, we like, you know, life is not uh, absent of risk. Whenever we're doing a physical activity, we're putting ourselves at a little bit of a risk of developing something. So tell us a little bit more about some of the things to consider, things that you tell your clients if they ever encounter an injury or an ache or pain. What are some things that we need to look into in the later stages of life compared to what we're like in our 20s? Well, you know, you you mentioned, you know, the inflammatory process there. I mean, we can we can touch on that for a moment because I I think chronic systemic inflammation, which is different than the acute inflammatory process that happens as you know, in response to an injury uh, or some kind of, you know, whatever it may be at the tissue level. You know, we we know um, I think more and more every day we're learning more and more every day that there is uh an element of uh inflammation associated with every single chronic disease uh and it's pretty much accepted that there's a gradual increase in the level of systemic chronic inflammation in the body as we age and uh, it's interesting, as a side note, I've got one chapter in my book uh, where I talk at length about dental health, because to me, our mouth is sort of a window into the health of our body. And we know that folks in my age group and older uh, are all dealing with some level of periodontal disease where there's some level of systemic inflammation in the mouth, which then I think really reflects, you know, what's happening in the body. So I tell everybody... Uh, see your hygienist every every couple of months like I do uh, and just get really crazy about taking care of your teeth uh, because to me it's um it's there's that connection there but looking more broadly we we know that there is uh, a slowing or turning down of the overall uh, immune system health as we age this is the reason why uh, folks who are older um, Actually, at this time of year, Ashley, as an aside, we're talking about the month of January. There are more people that pass in January and February um, in the you know elderly or very older age age groups than at any other time of the year. And the reason for that is is because this is the cold and flu season. So these are folks with compromised immune system health and and resiliency who um, have existing other health issues, what, you know, what are referred to as comorbidities. Uh, and so there's the onset of the flu uh, or some other virus of some kind. Uh, and that can be the trigger that ends up, uh, you know, causing the demise of that individual. So how do we uh, bolster our immune system health uh, that is to say, the immune response that deals with, for example, the onset of cancer. Like when we're younger, we could have cancer in some form or another, whether it be uh, DNA or even epigenetically uh, related in some way. That is to say, something in our environment like a pollutant or a plastic or something of that nature that causes this downstream effect, which initiates cancer. Well, in our 20s, uh, or 30s or 40s, we might be able to, our immune system might be able to handle that. But maybe in our 60s or 70s, it's not able to. So there's that process. But then there's the overall uh, systemic or chronic inflammation within the body that is 
hugely important. Now, listen, we could we could literally have an entire podcast where we just talk about inflammation because it's uh, there's so many factors. But you know, the root of what I believe uh, is you know the reason for most chronic inflammation is uh, the standard American diet. It's the amount of processed foods uh, that you know is ubiquitous now in our culture, right? Um, and these, these foods, these processed foods are highly inflammatory uh, and they lead to unhealthy guts, which have a downstream effect on, you know, neurotransmitters and all kinds of other factors. So, um, you know, one little, you know, sort of side note for your listeners, when I'm working or coaching an individual my age and we're working to help them improve their health uh, I'll always do uh, blood work with those folks and we'll, we'll do blood work on a regular basis and we'll monitor certain biomarkers. To me, the, one of the most important biomarkers to monitor, among other things, is C-reactive protein or the acronym is HSCRP, which is probably the best uh, and simplest uh, blood biomarker to reflect chronic inflammation in the body. So I get, I get folks to really zero in on what that number is because that number is telling us what is the level of chronic inflammation in the body. Uh, and then what can we do from a nutritional perspective, from an exercise per perspective? And then of course, uh, sleep, which we haven't talked about, which is massively important. Uh, and of course, stress and all the downstream effects of uh, these other things in life, including having a mission and a purpose, uh, and what you're doing for recreation and all these other factors. Um, but all of these things impact systemic inflammation in the body. So um, I would just suggest to everybody, uh, get some blood work, know what HSCRP is, uh, and you know identify what is the normal range, uh, and then start to figure out how you can lower that. And in many instances, it comes back to simply replacing processed food in some form with real food, right? Uh, and I'm a big fan. Um, you know, I, I consider myself, as I say in my book, I'm a plant-based meat eater. I believe the human uh, species is omnivorous. I'm not a fan of taking entire food groups out of the diet. Uh, I have a chapter in the book. I, I had a lot of fun writing it too. Meat eaters versus vegetarians, who's right? And so I examined both perspectives, right? And I think, you know, depending on where you're coming from, you could find problems with either perspective. Uh, I have an issue with folks who are extreme and exclusive carnivore. I think there are some things that they're missing, perhaps in plant-based uh, foods. Uh, but similarly, uh, you know, uh, I think folks that are, you know, shying away from animal-sourced protein and, and other uh, nutrients that can be in animal sourced foods, I think they'd be maybe missing things as well. I'll just finish with this thought, which is there's no perfect diet for every person. I think each of us needs to find what works for ourselves. But like I said, I, I'm not a fan of going, oh, I'm going to take this out or I'm going to take this completely out. Um, I like to look back as much as I can and learn as much as we, we, we can possibly know about how our ancestors uh, might have eaten before the onset of the agricultural revolution, right? Uh, which uh, goes back thousands of years, but we certainly, we can look over the last 50 years 
and see how much the food we're eating as a society has changed and how as that food has changed, uh, the, you know, the rate of chronic disease has skyrocketed uh, and the overall health of everybody within our society has changed. I think, you know, recent statistics say that, uh, and this is frightening, uh, as many as eight out of 10 are pre-diabetic, are metabolically unhealthy, that, you know, perhaps eight out of 10 are insulin resistant. That frightens me when I think about it. But when I look around, you know, four out of 10 are uh, overweight, maybe, or maybe even six out of 10 are overweight, four out of 10 are obese. It's frightening when we look at where we are right now as a country. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really amazing to uh, amazing. Like some people like to look at amazing being like, wow, that's great. It's actually quite shocking to see these statistics and it's a, uh, it's the evolution in regards to the food industry, pharmaceuticals. Again, it's it kind of, I mean, we can, you know, we talk all day about, um, you know, systems and how, you know, making food accessible and all that other stuff. I'm right there with you. I'm a plant-based meat eater myself. I think that's what you said. We yeah. live in, um, I live out in Marin County, California. We have like one of the largest farm, uh, farmers markets out here in uh, Northern California. Uh, and I'm extremely spoiled because we have to eat the most delicious vegetables in season uh, while also eating some really good meat. So um, definitely a, a huge fan of that. I love the fact that you really brought up the concept of chronic inflammation. Um, I think that especially nowadays with social media and just like the attention goes to inflammation, that the word inflammation actually gets very scary. But truth is, is that we do need to have acute inflammation to allow us to heal. But when we are dealing with systemic chronic inflammation, that's where things actually start to become challenging. It slows us down. It actually increases the likelihood that we do develop these chronic diseases. And, um, you know, when it comes to uh, cellular turnover, um, and, it, and actually in regards to things like things slowing down, all of our cells in our body will go, will, will live and die. And it, the natural cell death is what we call apoptosis. That's the, the medical term. But what happens is, is that in order, like what happens when you're younger is the fact that your cellular regeneration is a lot faster than how your cells die. And that's why my, at the time she was like a two, my two year old niece, I literally saw her, she fell face first into the ground and had a cut on her face. And then we literally just put like aquaphor on her face. And literally the next morning, six hours later, that cut was completely healed. Right. But as we get a little bit older, those cuts take a little bit longer because of the fact that our actual tissue regeneration is slower. And that also uh, listeners, another interesting term that you can look up um, is this term telomere. This is actually where we go into a little bit deeper into our DNA and our DNA will replicate with every cell replication, but they have these things called telomeres, which will actually dictate the amount of times there is an actual replication. And so that in itself also influences how we heal. And, and, and there's a book that I read was called the telomere effect. It was ages ago, but the behaviors and things that we do on a daily basis will impact how our cells will function. And this whole conversation that we're having with Al today is a concept of we have chronological age, which is 
how how many years you actually spend on this earth but then we actually have what we call physiological age in regards to how your cells and how your body actually functions and it's through movement eating the right things and you actually briefly talked about building some really good solid relationships as we age too because as we advance through stages in life we have various different life changes right we have starting a family you have young kids and your kids start to grow up and then they start to have, have like start having their own family and so having those relationships um, are also really key especially when it comes to uh, improving the quality of life so when you're working with your clients um, i know that we're kind of running out of time but briefly tell us a little bit more about like the importance of having some good meaningful relationships with other people well i think um you know we could we could learn a lot um and I, I include a chapter in my book on blue zones. And I think we can learn a little bit from these regions of the world where there are more centenarians than uh, in other regions of the world. And, you know, I got to be honest, you know, um, I take uh, to some degree the, the Netflix series with a little bit of a grain of salt because I think there's a little bit of an agenda there. But But the reality is that what we see in these communities, among other things, is that uh, people remain very active and are always, uh, they have a purpose and a reason for getting up in the morning. Uh, it's, the, it's a simple way to look at it. Um, and I think that's really important. You know, in, in our society, for whatever reason, uh, I think we're obsessed a little bit with this retirement word, right? So, I mean, I'm sitting here at 64 and, um, I actually retired uh, as a, I'm a veteran and I retired in 2007. Um, but, you know, folks look at me today and they go, man, it's, it's time for you to like, quote unquote, enjoy life, right? You're in your mid sixties, isn't it like retirement time? And I'm like, I feel like I haven't even started. Like there's so much that I still want to accomplish. I think this, this um, reason or purpose or having a mission and along with that understanding that we don't achieve or accomplish anything alone, we always do it together. The things that we accomplish together with other people are the most meaningful. So these relationships do become more important as time goes on. But I think it does come back to this idea of um, the idea that, you know, when we retire, when we decide, you know, we're ready to quote unquote enjoy life, I think is when the process of aging begins to accelerate even more. So there's a very, very intricate, in my mind, mind-body relationship. Um, and I think it relates in part to aging stereotypes, right? Like I, I, there's two chapters in my book where I talk about uh, things like ageism and specifically talk about uh, aging stereotypes and this idea that I hate the phrase, I hate's a strong word, but I hate the phrase anti-aging. Uh, because uh, because to me it it it, it sort of uh, glorifies youthfulness, right? And and as I sit here at sixty four, I know I'm not going to be you know thirty six again like you are. Uh, but I want to embrace every chapter of my life. I don't want to relive the past. I want to look forward. I want to live in the moment and and anticipate good things happening in my future. Uh, and of course, the way to do that is to create those things, right? To build those relationships, to have meaningful work that you can latch onto, where you can make a positive difference in the world. 
and I think these are the things that help keep us young, uh, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Uh, I mean, again, a simple phrase, the mind-body relationship, it's, it's just hugely powerful, uh, well beyond what I think our understanding is right now. Um, but yes, to your point, it's all very much interrelated. One hundred percent, and um, want to say thank you so much for your service. And um, yeah, it's because of the work that you do, we get a chance to do what we do here out in the U.S. So thank you. Yeah, um, thank you. And and I love that you said like embrace now, embrace the future. Um, I get this a lot. People are like, "Oh man, don't you miss like college and high school days?" And I'll say, "Well, it was for me, it's college and high school days, right at this point." Yeah. You know, it was, it was a great chapter in my life. Do I want to relive that chapter? No, because I'm in this new chapter. I'm loving every minute of it. And that's something that I grasp from what, what you said. And, you know, talking about work, right? You, you coach folks as they age. Um, before we talk about how people can get in touch with you, with everything that we've come, uh, discussed today, what are two great action steps that people can take to really maximize uh, their their health and well being, so they can maximize the time uh, or maximize the quality of the time that they have here on this earth. Well, you know, Ashley, uh, one of the things that we really haven't delved into in this conversation yet, and and it's actually uh, the first thing that I talk about when I when I'm working with an individual person, and certainly I spend a lot of time in, in social media trying to share these ideas, but. Uh, it comes back to mindset and belief systems, because the reality is, uh, you know, speaking to the folks who are listening right now, it's likely that the that a majority of those people have connected with you in some way, shape or form. Perhaps they're already exercising. You know, they're already kind of like I like you know, drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit. Right. Um, and we've got this one big, wonderful echo chamber where we can all just sit around and go, man, it's, you know, jujitsu is great. You know, it's, it's great for mobility. Like you can't, you can't even have, you can't have any success in, in jujitsu unless you've got massive amounts of not only joint range of motion, but control of that range of motion at end range strength, right? Which is how I define mobility strength at end range. Um, I mean, it's one big happy echo chamber, but the reality is that the overwhelming majority of people don't believe that their choices matter enough to change. And and our brains are really, I, I think our brains are selected and wired to protect us from the unknown. Like uh, people will go like, yeah, I mean, I know my life, you know, my health could be better now than, you know, but at least I know where I am now. Like, you know, to go, that unknown is is fear-based uh, and it's it's scary. So I want, you know, I think more than anything else, what I what I want to leave uh, at least now your listeners with is this idea that we have to take a step back and really consider how we think about aging and how we think about our health. Are we going to put our heads in the sand and block our ears and go, oh, it's all about our genes. It's all about family history. My dad had a heart attack, so I'm probably going to have a heart attack. Or, you know, my great-grandfather had cancer, so I'm probably going to have cancer. It is not about our DNA. It's a factor. Our genes are a factor. But what's as or more important is 
how uh, the environment inside and outside of our bodies influences how that DNA is expressed. That's epigenetics or our epigenome. So our lifestyle, the science tells us unequivocally that our lifestyle uh, determines about 80% of our health outcome. Do we believe that enough to try to start to make tiny little changes in our lifestyle, to try to start to, you know, make one little change, which may be almost imperceptible because it's so small, but can we build on that consistently and start to, you know, build motivation to take control of our health? This is what I work on with individuals a lot, because once they can start to believe it enough to make those tiny changes, then they can start to experience the positive effects of it. That is what builds motivation, right? So it's action that leads to motivation. Motivation doesn't come out of the, you know, out of the clouds and dribble down on us like rain. It just, as you know, it doesn't work that way. So it all begins with mindset. It all begins with, do we, you know, do we believe even in the deepest recesses of our, our brain and our soul do we believe that what we do actually matters enough to try to change? Yeah. Believe minds. I mean, it's, I've read so many mindset books and listened to mindset podcasts and everything. And as I think from an outside perspective, you don't believe in the mindset or how powerful your mind can be in regards to uh, its impact in your life. Every time you hear the word mindset, you're going to be like, oh, that's garbage. But once you truly start adopting it, it really does make sense and have a huge impact. I love it. Well, fact- I'll, uh, I'll jump in with one more quick thing. It gets a practical uh, recommendation, which I have found working with folks has made a huge difference. And that is journaling, right? So, and there are some people that are receptive to it and other people that are like, man, I don't do that. You know, I'm not a feeler, you know? But I, I get people to say, listen, write a little bit every day about what you're feeling, how you're thinking, what you're experiencing. Acknowledge something that you're grateful for uh, and, and just get into the habit of doing this every day. And I can tell you, Ashley, uh, to a person, everybody has come back to me and said, this has been a, it's been life changing for them. And again, not in a day, not in a week. Uh, but you begin to, you know, go into your mind and really uh, explore how you're thinking. And are you defeating yourself, you know, uh, before you even get started? Or are you starting to open your mind to the possibilities which may exist that the last third of your life might actually be the best third of your life? That's a possibility, right? But it isn't the way most people think. So uh, journaling, you know, and it, there's no right way to do it. You know, you get a notebook, man, you start writing, you know, and whatever comes to mind, you just write it down. And uh, it's been life changing for many people. So I would, I just throw that out there. I love it. Al, this, I mean, this has all been extremely eye opening and helpful. And I'm so thankful for you sharing your expertise and especially how you help people, which then brings me to my last question for the folks who are listening and need your help and are ready to make some changes, make their third the last third of their life, the best third ever. Yeah. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, um, the best way is probably through my website, thealwyman.com. Uh, I am uh, active on most of the social media platforms, although some more than others. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Coach Al, I think. Uh, Instagram, The Al Lyman. 
um, and obviously LinkedIn where we connected. Um, so I would say any of those, I mean, I'm really easy to find, uh, you know, uh, very easy to get in touch with, but the website is probably a good place to start. I also have a, a, di a different website, which emanated originally from the gate analysis lab, which is pursuitathleticperformance.com. So on that website, I have six online courses all under the umbrella restore. Uh, so there's restore the foundation program, restore the body weight strength program. These are uh, easy to follow uh, programs. If you enjoy exploring movement and exercise in the comfort of your own home with minimal equipment, um, they can be great programs uh, to delve into and they're relatively inexpensive. So there's another resource there uh, as well. Um, I know that's hard for some people who, you know, don't enjoy exercise and, you know, to motivate themselves to, you know, get out their phone and go, okay, he said to do this exercise this way. Oh, okay. But there are some people that I think that can be very successful for if you're willing to just, you know, put in a little bit of effort and time. Extremely helpful. Listeners, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, I'm actually going to be putting it into the show notes. Al, the Al Lyman, it's been a pleasure. Ashley, thanks so much for having me. You know, we could talk about this stuff forever. I hope I wasn't too wordy, but listen, uh, this is important stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, my friend, if you don't have your health, nothing else matters nearly as much. That's a truism. Health is our true wealth. Um, there is no way around that. And all you need to do is speak to somebody who's dealing with a chronic disease uh, and they'll, you know, go, if only I knew right um so it's uh it's an important topic i appreciate you having me on man no patient therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast we are not providing medical advice and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider